0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Verterra Dinnerware. Learn more at verterra.com. That's V-E-R-T-E-R-R-A.com. Time for Lunch is a new podcast from HRN for curious young eaters where we focus on the serious questions. Aren't chickens tiny dinosaurs? We get to know our favorite foods in unexpected ways. We just like cheered like you would cheer for your classmate when they're
2: rounding second base in softball. And
3: we
1: just like, peach, 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 peach. Yay, thank you, peaches. Learn some new recipes and jokes.
2: What does a boxer's mom
1: put in his lunch? A knuckle sandwich! And load up on fun facts.
0: Experts estimate that there are between one and 2,000 types of insects eaten around the world.
1: So roll up your sleeves and dig in. Subscribe Time for Lunch on your favorite podcast app so that you and your favorite young eater can catch up on the whole first season. New episodes of Season 2 out each week.
2: On this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out, we are going to attempt to capture the essence of two large and diverse groups, Eastern European and Jewish immigrants. Many ethnic identities and food traditions fall under these very broad labels, as the map of Eastern Europe, including Russia and the rest of the former Soviet Union, has evolved many times over throughout the centuries. Similarly, Jewish immigrants who came to the United States and settled in the Midwest are certainly not a monolith. Some came from Germany or parts of Eastern Europe, while others came from North Africa and the Middle East. As you can see, there is a lot to cover. So let's get started. Come with me on today's exploration of the Midwest's rich culinary tapestry. Our first guest is Jeff Miller, Associate Professor in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition at Colorado State University. Jeff has research expertise in food and culture issues, food as symbol, small town tourism, and traditional food production and preservation methods. He's also spent time working with the large Czech community in the small town of Wilson, Kansas. And he's going to share a lot of interesting insights with us. Jeff, thanks so much for chatting with us today.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: Absolutely. Well, I want to start with um, putting some things in context since we're talking about uh, the very diverse group of Eastern Europeans uh, and and their migration into the American Midwest. Um, what were some of these different ethnicities um, that uh, would be considered Eastern Europeans and what parts of the Midwest did they settle in?
4: There, there were a number of groups from Eastern Europe, uh, there were a lot of Poles that came into the United States, um, as well as a, a lot of Czechs, although at the time they were called Bohemians, right? there, there were Russian Germans, and a little later, some of the other countries uh, that were in the Austro-Hungarian empire, people started coming from those places like Hungary and the different countries of the Balkans. So, Really, from the Baltic to the down to the Adriatic, almost there were a number of people who come up, came over to immigrated to the United States.
2: About what what time, um, you know, what time period did uh, the Eastern European uh, immigrants start to settle in the Midwest? And did they focus um, in any particular states or, or regions uh, within the Midwest itself?
4: Yeah, they came to a number of places in the Midwest, and once again, it kind of depends on on what group and when they came. Uh, Eastern European immigration probably starts around 1820 and uh, continues up until about 1880 in various ways. From 1820 to the Civil War, uh, people, uh, the Bohemians came at that time, Uh, some Czechs came at that time. And then after the Civil War, up until about 1880, uh, a lot came. And there were also a lot of Germans who were coming at that time as well. So Mm -hmm. Poles, Germans, Russians, Bohemians, a lot that came. They uh, tended to settle in. These were people who mostly were coming for agricultural opportunities. They wanted farmland. So, you know, the Czechs were settling. Czechs mostly came through Chicago and then filtered out to various places, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, in the Dakotas a little bit, uh, and some as far down as Texas. There's actually a big Czech population down in central Texas as well. The Interesting. The tended to settle mostly in what we would think of as the old Northwest frontier, what we think of the old Midwest, which is Ohio, Michigan, uh, up to Wisconsin, down in there, Uh the Russian Germans, who we can talk about a little bit as well, the Russian Germans uh, tended to settle mostly in what we think of as, you know, the traditional Midwest, Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, uh, in the Dakotas there. So most of these people were looking, were peasants. Uh, they were looking for an opportunity to farm, to have their own land, uh, finally, and, and to farm. So they mostly came uh, out, to the, out to the farmlands Once we get to about 1870 or 1880, there's what they call the second great wave of immigration. And these are people who are coming to the U.S., but they're mostly looking for industrial work, industrial, they call industrial opportunities. And so the great wave of Eastern European immigration coming to the Midwest is essentially over, not long after the Civil War.
2: Well, that that and I've learned something new there because I actually have um, Ukrainian heritage myself um, on my grandmother's side, and um, my great grandparents came over from what is now modern day Poland, but at the time I mean, they they ethnically identified as Ukrainian, uh, but they came in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds to Northeast Ohio for those uh, those industrial opportunities. So I just assumed that you know most Eastern Europeans kind of. Uh, were in that sort of traditional turn of the 20th century industrial, uh, industrial age wave. Um, but now I know that they've, uh, that so many of them in the Midwest came much earlier than that. And I'm sure because of, um, you know, their, uh, farming practices and, and coming over for those agricultural opportunities, they brought with them, um, some interesting food ways as well that ended up getting integrated into, um, our Midwestern food culture too. Um, Give us some examples of uh, maybe some specific dishes that Eastern Europeans and as we just discussed, it's a it's a wide variety of ethnicities that, you know, would be considered Eastern European. So Poles and Czechs and, you know, Ukrainians and Hungarians and Slovenians. And, um, you know, I know that you've done a lot of work with the Czech community. Maybe we want to start there uh, with some of their their food ways and practices um, in Kansas.
4: Yeah, so if you go to the Czech Festival in Wilson today, there's a Czech feed, and the main dish is called Itternitsi, and uh, they serve it almost kind of in a meatloaf kind of style, um, but it's always referred to by people as a sausage, and it's uh, a lot of liver, uh, ground meat, a lot of oatmeal, and a lot of these things are stretched with a lot of bready kind of products. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and in fact, I think if you looked at a lot of these immigrant groups, you'd see a lot of them brought their sausage, their traditional sausage with them because sausage is, you know, the food of poor people. And these are mostly uh, peasants that were emancipated and could move for the first time and came to the United States looking for farmland. Of course, the, the traditional the, the, kind of the, the symbolic ethnic dish for the Czechs, of course, is the kolache, which yes. is a sweet roll. And it's, uh, you know, a lot of people look at it and go, oh, that's a Danish. But uh, it, it comes, you know, originally actually comes out of the Hungarian, the Hungary, Austro-Hungarian Empire and is a Danish-like thing. And, treated, you know, of course, the real traditional ones are poppy seed and plum. But you see every flavor of the rainbow today.
2: Right. We In, in my neck of the woods, you can get kolache literally almost at every grocery store in every grocery store bakery and then in specialty shops um even my my 100% Italian grandmother made colacci as well um so it just shows the kind of reach um we have to have it at every single holiday um and we it's uh, we have apricot nut uh and poppy so that is a really interesting one that I, you know I, it's ubiquitous everywhere, at least in my part of the Midwest. Um and there's just this kind of feeling that okay, it's this ethnic pastry, but um to know that it it does have a check check roots and it is really something that everybody uh, no matter what their ethnic background is, um, you know, it, it has a kolache usually at any holiday, at least in at least in my little corner of, of the Midwest.
4: Yeah. And if you go to these little towns like uh, you know, Wilbur and and in in Wilson, Kansas, you you can get check. You can get things at the check stores or at the local gift store. It's interesting. There's a, actually a kolache Hut chain down in Texas, and it's a pretty big deal down there. And of course, it being Texas, you know they always put their own spin on stuff. So you can get a sausage and jalapeno kolache down there, which. You know, there's no Czech grandmother in the world that would ever have made a sausage and jalapeno. <laughs> but yeah, leave it to the Texans to put their own little spicy spin. Oh well,
2: that that's that's a whole other. The Texas needs its own show, and and this yeah. show's about the Midwest. So, um, and and I'll say, you know, I, again, I guess from my own personal sort of bias, just being from the industrial Midwest, it never occurred to me that, uh, you know, there would be so many, uh, Eastern Europeans. Uh, settling in places like Kansas and Nebraska. Um, and uh, I, I actually, I want to focus uh, continuing uh, about the Czechs in, in Wilson, Kansas, because I know you spent spent a lot of time there. Um, and it's important, I think, to talk a little bit about those festivals. And you mentioned uh, a Czech festival and the role that festivals play in um, bringing these food traditions to a much wider audience. So yeah, they, um, tell us about that. I've never been, I've been to a number of these type of ethnic festivals again in, in my corner of the world, but I want to hear about how they do it in Kansas.
4: Yeah. And, and like you said, these happen everywhere. People are trying to keep alive their history and keep alive their ethnicity. And uh, you know, most, especially small groups like the Czechs. I mean, these were never a huge, a huge segment of the population. This is not like a lot of Italians, you know, and, east coast or a lot of polish people in the detroit area or whatever these are small pockets they tended to get you know integrated assimilated homogenized pretty quickly uh you go to these places on a day-to-day basis people aren't you know people aren't eating it or nietzsche on a day-to-day basis they might eat kolaches pretty regularly but these festivals really serve a purpose for these places um you know in terms of wilson it's it's not on the interstate. Uh, it doesn't have a big industry. It doesn't have any of the big things that keep a town alive in the Midwest, like a college or a prison. So, how do you get people to come and visit your town? How do you keep it alive? You have a festival, and so they have the, the, the Catholic women. You know, it's, so Czechs, mostly Catholic population. Saint Wenceslaus Church is the local Catholic church there. They put on a big feed every year. There's also a street festival. They have uh Czech beer you know Bud Budweiser is actually originally was Budvar which is right, Czech beer right
2: Budvar Czechvar
4: yeah Yeah Czechvar and Budvar so they serve Czech, Czech var, Budvar in the street there and they have dancing and they have you know the usual Midwestern festival things you know last the last one I went to there was a guy there selling deep fried twinkies and so you know there's all this melding of stuff that's going on but it's really important for these towns to to keep keep the heritage alive it also gives them it almost gives them like a brand. It gives people a reason to come to this town. It keeps uh, you know keeps local heritage going. It keeps local pride going. It keeps people uh, gives people something to do to keep the community going and bind it together. The people who put this thing on year after year, they really believe in their community and they really put in an, an amazing amount of work to keep the community viable. And this is really a big celebration of it. And they get to share it with other people and. People, you know, people come and they spend money for at least one weekend a year. So it's it, it's a real win, you know, both internally and externally for the communities.
2: Sure, and and that is definitely uh, a a trend that we see all across uh, the the Midwest and small towns and and communities that, um, you know, and churches. I, you know, certainly we haven't talked a whole lot about uh, you know the role of. Churches in and their church dinners, and in some instances like this, um, you know, being the backbone of carrying on some you know, aspects of food tradition. And so, uh, and I love the fact that you talked about. Yeah, they have deep fried Twinkies, but you have the deep fried Twinkies right next to the kolache, and that just shows again that that evolution and integration of these. Um, uh, these ethnic food ways that ultimately become part of the Midwestern food landscape. Um, Which brings me to my next question for you um, about something that I have not personally experienced, but I've heard about. And this is the Runza uh, in Nebraska. And um, I understand that there is that the Runza has Russian roots Um, and it's a meat pie and it's so popular that there is a fast food chain, um, in Nebraska. Um, so what can you tell us about this phenomena?
4: Ah, the runza. I love the runza. Uh, Yeah, the runza is a, is a Russian, well, the, the Russian food is from that German Russian population and there's a lot of German Russians, in the Midwest, uh, German Russians and some of them are various like Anabaptist persuasions. And there's a lot of Old Believer Mennonite Amish. Sure, uh, yeah, we ha-
2: we have a whole we had a whole episode on that too, we which was yeah. very interesting. Yeah.
4: So and so these people came to the and settled a lot in Nebraska. So Runza is ground beef and onions and a lot of cabbage and it's wrapped in bread dough and then it's baked and so it's kind of like a baked hamburger, I guess one might say. Uh, they're marketed a lot as Kraut burgers through the Midwest as well. So if you see a Kraut burger, that's a and you're right, there's a whole chain based out of Lincoln. Uh, so it's yeah, it's it's essentially uh you know big baked bun stuffed with hamburger and things. These are delightful. There used to be an outlet of that. And in my town here in Colorado and it's closed and it's it's cry and shame. But the runs is the runs is a a great thing. Um, I grew up in Kansas. Uh, There's a lot of people who sell kraut burgers and things. It's a popular fundraising item. So community will get together and make a bunch and freeze them. And then you can go buy 20 or 50 or whatever and put them in your freezer and bake them off through the year. Um, it's right. interesting. Do, uh,
2: what I see a lot when it comes to fundraisers, um, and again, back to sort of the churches that, that, um, do a lot of these type of things is the pierogies. Um, right. and we haven't talked about pierogies and this is something that I would usually associate with, um, you know, a central or, East, or Eastern European, uh, ethnic palate. Um, is, is there, um, a history behind that that you know about?
4: Yeah, the pierogies you see them you see them more in what I would think of as the old Midwest, like where you're where you're from in the Ohio area, and in in there there weren't so many, you know, ethnically Russian immigrants in the farther west parts of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, the Russian Germans, you know, they really maintained as you've probably talked about with your other guests, they've really maintained their German kind of identity. But but there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of dumpling kind of dishes. The Czechs are famous have a famous dumpling and almost every Eastern European group, you know, we're talking about peasants, we're talking about agricultural people, and you have a lot of cheap carbohydrate calories to fill you up, you know, a little bit of protein, as much vegetables as you can, but basically a lot of inexpensive carbohydrates. So you have, right. you know, the, the pierogies stuffed with potatoes, you have the bread dumplings, you have the you know, the big fat noodles with a little bit of chicken and chicken and noodles. And so we see that a lot. That's a really common Eastern European phenomenon. that, that big, you know, that big, almost middle of the plate carb like that. Right. And people love them. (laughs) Me included,
2: me, me included. Is there one dish that you think, um, you know, would be emblematic of, um, the, the Czechs in Kansas, for example, that, um, you know, if you, maybe you couldn't get outside of Kansas, but, you know, is was uniquely um, the flavors of the Czech uh, folks that settled in Kansas.
4: Oh, for the entree, it would have to be the Iternizzi, because that's kind of what, you know, that's kind of the, the, that's the main dish they're known for, but, you know, it, you know nine times and out that's the, big, and
2: that's the sausage thing
4: yeah that's a that's a kind of a big meat sausage you know it's served different ways it's rare it's not usually put in links uh so much but it's it's meat it's a lot of liver it's a lot of oatmeal but you know you think about Czech food you think about kolaches and if you ask the local people in town they they say what's you know the most emblematic food of the community they'd say kolaches without a doubt
2: well, I'll, I will. I will buy that because I do buy that, literally. Uh, and I think that's that's a great place for us to uh, to end because as I'm thinking about this, you have, um, you know, Kalachis at the grocery store in Ohio and runs a fast food chains in Nebraska. It doesn't get more integrated into the Midwest than stuff like that. So, um, this has been a really interesting conversation, uh, Jeff. I'm thankful that uh, you had some time to spend with us and, and share some of your insights with our listeners.
4: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. So everybody go out there and eat a kolache.
2: Sounds good.
1: This episode is brought to you by Verterra impressively versatile, stylishly sustainable, environmentally disposable dinnerware from Fallen Leaves. Vertera is a mission-driven company focused on making environmentally responsible, single-use products. Founded in 2006 on the belief that every culinary creation deserves a beautiful, sustainably crafted foundation, Vertera reclaims earthly discards like fallen leaves and tree scraps to design elegant, disposable dinnerware that elevates the look of food presentation. In short, a beautiful, disposable plate that can go with your food to a composting facility. The team from Verterra recently made a huge pivot with their factories and started producing masks, gloves, sanitizer, and other PPE that food businesses need to safely reopen. Learn more at vertera.com. That's Verterra.com. That's V E R T E R R A.com. Well, our
2: next guest is going to introduce us to Jewish influences on Midwestern foodways. Ellen Steinberg is the author of From the Jewish Heartland, Two Centuries of Midwest Foodways. So I can't think of a better person to give us insight into the intersection of Jewish and Midwestern foodways and cultures. Ellen, thanks for joining the show.
3: Well, thank you for asking me.
2: Absolutely. Well, let's uh, first set the stage, uh, if if we can, on how uh, the Jewish people came to the Midwest. Let's start out about talking about uh the different waves of migration.
3: Okay. Um early on in the 18th century, like 1760s or so forth, there was a Sephardic Jew um, who came who was a trader who came to what is now Michigan and lived in a fort, survived, I mean it was quite a story, survived an Indian raid um, and traded along along the the um, rivers in in the Midwest, then, um, oh, gosh, Then Jewish traders who were barred, believe it or not, by the Spanish from entering or settling in the Louisiana territory, set up shop on the other side of the Mississippi in Cahokia, which is now in Illinois, huh. and started trading there and they went up and down the illinois river the mississippi river um and so forth and and up and down in the midwest um on by land then in 1853 a photographer who was who was um a sephardic jew uh went joined actually the um John Colonel John Fremont expedition that was looking for a convenient way for a railroad to be to be built all the way out to California. So he joined the expedition in Missouri and they went through Kansas, um, oh, Utah, California, and so forth. And it it was interesting that in his memoirs, he brought with him he mentioned that he brought with him some experimental um prepared goods like coffee and tea and powdered milk and things of that nature interesting but um that he also when they were out exploring this unknown territory um besides hunting for buffalo and so on they traded with the indians for toasted grass seeds Um, So he was able, for the most part, actually, he was able totally to keep kosher on this journey, even though he went a few days without eating anything because the other men were um, hunting and killing and eating coyotes and things of that nature. And he just couldn't bring himself to do that. So yeah it was interesting um
2: wow i, I, I it would it would you know it would seem to me at least that it would be very challenging to keep kosher particularly on the frontier yeah um, you know, with uh, with you know dealing with other cultures that may not be familiar with um you know those those uh food customs and practices so it really probably was a lot of effort on behalf of uh you know the Jewish community to really you know keep those um uh, traditions in place.
3: Right, and at the time, the most the the city that had the largest number of Sephardic Jews was Cincinnati, uh-huh. and a lot of and I'm not exactly sure why, but I expect that it was because it was um you know it pretty central at that time to right. what was the United States, and um from there you could spread out to Canada and down south and. You know, West as well as East. If you were traders, um, then the, another wave was uh, following the uh, eight following the failed Bismarck revol- uh, revolution uh, in eighteen forty-eight, and the these these immigrants were German speakers. Now, Germany wasn't united until eighteen seventy-one, so these were right. German speakers. And they were educated people—doctors, lawyers, bankers—you um, know, people who had skilled trades like book uh, bookbinders and and things of that nature. Well, Anyhow, they came to obviously New York, but they also came to the Midwest, uh, particularly to Chicago, because Chicago was a burgeoning city, and there were lots and lots of of opportunities for doctors lawyers businessmen etc to to make money and to settle and at one point they a lot of them settled in Milwaukee and it was known Milwaukee became known as Athens of the Midwest um these these early settlers were both orthodox and reform and oh. the reform um movement had started in germany and it was a more humanistic approach to judaism and so reformed jews did not necessarily keep kosher or um or subscribe to a lot of the the um oh i guess practices that orthodox jews did but these particular jews considered themselves germans so uh-huh. they brought with them German foods, which fit right in with, with what was with already
2: Milwaukee in particular. In yeah, Wisconsin. exactly.
3: Right, exactly. And so, um they also found that, for example, the U.S. government had stocked the Illinois River with carp, and carp in Germany, at least in central Central Germany, was considered a delicacy. So here uh-huh. it was. Um, The availability of carp for food that had used that used to have been, um, you know, a delicacy and very expensive in Germany or in Europe. It was cheap, plentiful and bountiful. Exactly. And so a lot of Mm -hmm. a lot of their dishes would incorporate carp. Um, it, It just it just depended on what they made, depended on local local Produce and local local availability of of uh, things. Chicago also was the meat packers, um, right. and the stockyards. And believe it or not, they had a kosher kosher butchering um, sections in in the stockyards, and and so Jews who did keep kosher had available to them um, kosher meats. Then. In the 18, oh, 1870s, 1880s, because of pogroms and persecutions in Eastern Europe, you got a lot of, oh, maybe 200,000 total, not to Chicago, but to the US, a lot of Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe. And um, these were farmers, peddlers, traders. Um, people who who didn't necessarily have a, a great deal of, of education and they came over and settled at least in the Midwest um, because there was a a huge push for industrialization at that time they could work in factories they could work um, on the farmlands farms they could raise berries they could raise cows they they could they could become like they did in the old country, farmers. Um, these the women didn't necessarily have cookbooks that they brought with them, like the German Jews did. But they brought in their memories um, the recipes. Right. You know that. So, that, can
2: you give me some examples of, of some of those recipes and and how? Cause it's so interesting to me. You know the 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 Jewish communities are so diverse within. You know, uh, you have Orthodox versus Reform. You have Ashkenazi versus uh, Sephardic. You have right. all you have all these different groups, and with them, you know, different uh, culinary practices, different uses of ingredients, and in different types of of food ways. And then they're you know obviously settling in different parts of the Midwest, which have different availabilities of different foods. So. You've given some examples, the, you know, carp and, uh, you know, then obviously with the, uh, the stockyards and, and some of the meat issues and um, in, around Chicago. But um, it, this is interesting. This, you know, some people had cookbooks and some people didn't. How what what kind of, um, you know, recipes were uh, these different groups bringing? How were, and how were they, you know, different from one another?
3: OK, for example, um, Minnesota is famous for its wall pike. And during the high holy days, um, Jewish women used to make gefilte fish, which is basically ground up white fish and, and poached and so forth. And um, because, because walleye pike was so readily available in Minnesota, the um, Eastern European women there um, substituted walleye pike for whitefish. Um Sephardic Jews there were never very many I think total of something like 70,000 of them in the US uh ever came but the Sephardic Jews that that arrived in the Chicago area um were probably responsible for sweet and sour fish. The, their cuisine okay. norm Yeah, their cuisine um normally had like uh, stuffed lamb, couscous, things from the middle east. Middle East, yeah. Yeah. And um really interesting thing was one of the the earliest examples I ever saw of fusion cuisine came from Minnesota in terms of chinese steamed fish, which again was walleye pike. Um and it was with Chinese chopped up Chinese vegetables and so on and so forth. So it was kind of a fusion cuisine because vegetables were very, very much available in Minnesota. Um, when we were looking down in Missouri at um, at some early recipes, we found that that people in Missouri, Jews in Missouri, did not use a whole lot of lima beans in their recipes but Hmm. they did use a lot of broccoli because Missouri is a great place to grow broccoli and broccoli would be inexpensive. I've learned something
2: (laughs) new. I had no idea that Missouri was, you know, the the broccoli
3: capitals. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much so. And so you get broccoli soup recipes and you get broccoli and cheese pie recipes and things like that down in Missouri. But up in Minnesota, you get a lot of lima bean uses in in stews and in, believe it or not, lima bean soup. Um, so, you know, it, it just depended on what was locally available mm-hmm. and what was plentiful. And, you know, even today we look at what's on sale at the grocery. Well, mm-hmm. Jewish women did the same thing. You know, what was on sale? And so whatever was on sale, they could incorporate into their traditional cuisine.
2: Right. And speaking of traditional cuisine, uh, you know, I understand that at, at some point there was an effort to Americanize the foods that different Jewish groups brought with them to the Midwest. Why did this happen and how did this happen?
3: Uh, well, it it actually, there are two factors at work here. Um, Lizzie Black-Kander, who was a very wealthy woman in Wisconsin, wrote a cookbook that um, was aimed at teaching um, young women how to cook in the event that they were hired in households, wealthier households, and also to teach them how to cook for their own households. So she wrote the Settlement Cookbook. And it went through many, in fact, I think it's still in, in, uh, print and she, it wasn't a kosher cookbook at all. It it had Easter recipes, Easter lamb and (laughs) non-kosher recipes in there because she realized that not everybody kept kosher. So, um, so the, uh, the other thing was at, at the same time, there were um women who who belong to a movement to Americanize all of these Yiddish speaking um strangely dressed women who who needed to as in their opinion learn how to cook healthy American foods and so one of their emphasis emphases was to um eliminate um spices and herbs from the diet they they analyzed they analyzed um foreigners diets and found them lacking in many instances in terms of what was considered at that time healthy foods so you know over the period of a perhaps a generation a lot of spices such um such as um turmeric and, and and chilies and chili peppers and garlic and so forth were dropped out of uh out of american foods and consequently jewish foods because a lot of the women who came over here wanted to assimilate and become american americanized right. so um those were the two main main factors main pushes um in terms of americanizing jewish food
2: now i was there i'm assuming that there was a, a resurgence and a reclaiming of that jewish food identity at some point after this you know uh quote unquote americanization of uh you know the more uh spicy literally and figuratively aspects of uh ethnic cuisine
3: yes there was it seems that in the 50s um after At that point, a lot of Jews had moved to the suburbs as they made some money and, and wanted to escape from, from crowded city conditions and, in some cases, from slums. Um, so they moved to the suburbs, and their children were attending public schools, and there was a, a, a fear, if you will, that they were losing their Jewish identity especially among Reform Jews. And at the same time, um, people like, well, let's say companies like uh, Betty Crocker and so forth came out with cookbooks for children. And the Jewish people, the sisterhood at the synagogues thought we can do this too. And some of the bigger publishers um, thought we can do this too and we can make – Jewish recipes for children so that it reinforces their Jewish identity, um, at least in the home. And so that's when you got um, cookbooks that would have uh, holiday-specific recipes that children could do, along with um, a little discussion, if you will, of the holiday itself. And and that was just in case the mother and the father— didn't really know, you know, so oh. so it was um that was part and parcel of what went on in the 50s and the 60s uh, in terms of in terms of trying to reintroduce uh, children to their Jewish heritage. Then you got some right. really strange recipes um that that were that were easy for the kids to do, such as dreidel salad which was a canned a half a canned pear upside down so that the roundy top part was facing upwards and then raisins inserted in term in for hebrew letters so that it looked like the dreidel that you spin the top oh, that wow. you that you spin at at hanukkah um I'm going to have the- <laughs> to
2: find a picture of
3: this <laughs> And and another bizarre one was um, actually had its roots in the 20s when it was considered uh, very chic for, and it wasn't a Jewish dish, um, for ladies who lunched to have what they called candle salad. And, you know, it, it became so ubiquitous that it lost all of the cachet that it had. And that was, again, you needed canned pineapple rings. So you get a canned pineapple ring and you get a banana, all of which implies that you had access to these items, which were imported into the Midwest. Um, Then you had a maraschino cherry on the top and you drizzled mayonnaise along the sides and on the bottom. and. I've actually seen this. I've yes. seen this
2: in vintage cookbooks. Yes. Um, I don't think they were specific to you know no. Jewish cooking, but I have seen this in
3: 1950s, 19,
2: 1960s yep. vintage and, cookbooks.
3: Yeah. And it really started out in, in about the 20s. And in fact, Thank it was you. so notable that it was mentioned in newspapers that reported about society's luncheons, ladies who, who lunched and so forth. Um, well, I,
2: I don't necessarily think that that's going to make it on the tables of ladies who lunch in the 21st century. but no. <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> defi- it definitely is a remarkable dish and one one that you know it, it, it's interesting. Both of these things that you mentioned, you know, having these canned goods, uh, you know, is a really interesting intersection of you know some of the industrial, uh, you know, the industrial food that you know right. we see, uh, you know, really take. Take hold in the mid twentieth century with you know canned foods and ready foods and this sort of thing, um, and utilizing those in these kind of unique ways, um, memorable ways
3: for sure, (laughs) very memorable ways in some instances. Yes, Um, the intersection of all these, all these abilities in terms of, in terms of utilizing canned goods and so forth, as opposed to having to make everything yourself. um, I found just fascinating. Right.
2: And, and, I mean, and you see that evolution, you know, across every group, um, you know, particularly, uh, you know, as we've gone through this journey in the Midwest, you know, we hear time and time again, some, some, you know, repeated themes, and this is one of them, that, you know, as mechanization and, uh, you know, better access to some of these foods um, and ingredients, uh, it changes the dynamics of, uh, you know, the the family and the kitchen and, and food preparation and uh, excess time, uh, you know, and uh, for, for, you know, the women in the household and how that right. changes the dynamic of, of um, you know, sort of the, the makeup of, family roles and and also, uh, you know, families passing down certain food traditions to their children as well, because they're not necessarily spending as much time in the kitchen. And, you know, this is where some things like these cookbooks are very important cultural tools to, um, you know, maintain and preserve those those food traditions that ultimately also become part of, uh, you know, a regional identity and ethnic identity and tell a larger story. and your book tells a larger story too, which is why I'm glad that you uh, we had a chance to have you on the show. Um, any final parting thoughts on this before we let you go?
3: Well, basically, in terms of Jewish food, Jewish food is foods that Jews eat wherever they are in the world. So I always found that um, a truth. They'd adapt it if they had dietary restrictions to those dietary restrictions, but they were quick to utilize um, whatever was available in terms of canned goods or um, local produce and, and uh, material, other materials. So.
2: And that's very, that's very much, again, the sort of what we hear often um, as, Uh, immigrants come to the United States, finding new ways to adapt from, uh, you know, what they were uh, had available from wherever they came from. And now in a new land, adapting to what they have on hand, uh, you know, here in the United States and in the Midwest. Um, Ellen, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time and you sharing your expertise with our listeners.
3: Well, thank you once again for asking me.
2: Absolutely.